the oscillation leads to an 82% increase in lifespan in yeast compared to the control cells. And this is the most pronounced lifespan extension that we have ever observed in yeast, in our hands at least. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? In 2023, a study was published in the journal Science sharing a breakthrough with the longevity field. The study used synthetic biology to alter the gene network of yeast cells. And what they found was incredible. They were able to increase the lifespan of yeast cells by 82% compared to control cells. Various media outlets have covered this study, and the study finding might spark a wave of transformative advancement in the longevity field. Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome back to Longevity by Design. This episode is an in-depth discussion with the lead scientist who worked on this study, Dr. Nan Hao. Dr. Hao provides a behind-the-scenes look into the motivation and the science behind this study. During the discussion with Dr. Hao, we go into detail about this novel paper. We asked him about the gene network he created, why he picked the gene he did, and how what he discovered can transform the longevity science going forward. This conversation was very interesting for me, as this is a new method that might allow us to significantly increase the longevity of model organisms and possibly humans. So far, there was only one study that provided this magnitude of lifespan extension in model organisms, DAF2 in worms. Utilizing this method might allow us in the future to reach a lifespan extension higher than 100%, as a combination of genetic manipulation of different longevity genes might provide endless opportunities. Enjoy the discussion, and don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Nan Hao. Dr. Hao received his PhD in biochemistry and biophysics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He was a postdoctoral fellow with Timothy Elson at the University of North Carolina and Aaron O'Shea at Harvard University's Howard Hughes Medical Institute. The goal of Nan's lab is to understand how network architecture governs the dynamics and function of regulatory responses in the context of stress, aging, or disease. His lab has three main focuses, decoding the dynamics of stress responses, probing the causes of cellular aging, and quantifying the heterogeneity in cancer cells. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome uh, to the show now. It's a pleasure having you here with us, uh, Nan. And uh, I would like to start with a question about uh, your background. What uh, made you to become a scientist and specifically what uh, made you being interested in molecular biology and specifically aging? Okay. Yes. So, uh, so I, ha- I have been interested in science from very, very early on, like uh, even in my high school and undergraduate, I've been very interested in, in science and especially in biology. So, so, um, so now looking back, I really, I, didn't consider other passes. Uh, this is like the natural path to go forward, and it has been uh, going well. So, so that's basically how I get into science. And for molecular biology of aging, I want to talk a little bit about my, my training. <clears throat> so uh, during my PhD from very earlier, uh, uh, I have two mentors. One is an experimental biologist, one is a computational biologist. And uh, basically, we, uh, through collaboration with them, I, I obtained this combined trainings in experimental and computational biology, starting from a graduate school. And then during my postdoc, I also do this, uh, did this multidisciplinary uh, work, uh, combining the computational modeling and the molecular experiments together, try to help us to understand uh, 
how sales operate uh, in the changing environment to achieve their responses. So, and then I started my uh, own lab uh, at UCSD. Uh, I started with some uh, uh, studying uh, stress response at the beginning because that's my postdoc work. I continued that work a little bit, and quickly I got interested in cellular aging. And uh, uh, very fortunately, I found some of my colleagues are also very interested in cellular aging. And we form a team and we collaborate together. This is, has been already for uh, eight years. And this team is a multidisciplinary team. We have, we have bioengineers, we have physicists, we have uh, biologists, we have computational modelers, uh, but we all share the same interest in cellular aging. So this is, uh, has been very productive, very interesting, very fun. So, so that's how I got into the aging field uh, and uh, started uh, working on aging. And uh, yeah, so that, that's pretty much it. That has been fun. I, I enjoyed doing research in aging. That's cool, and I'm sure that it uh, was fun, and doing sci science is fine sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's very hard, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm, happy, I'm happy that you're saying that it's fun. Uh, but uh, to take it to a more serious note, when I uh, bumped into your uh, recent paper in the science magazine, I was blown away about uh, what uh, are the opportunity based on the, these papers, and instead of looking at uh, one protein or one gene and seeing how it's uh, influenced the lifespan of organism or cell, you, you took a much more uh, holistic and network-wise uh, process. So we will dive into that and spend the next, uh, I don't know, maybe half an hour to an hour in uh, discussing this paper. But let's start uh, in the, uh, building the stage for that, and specifically, I would like you to explain to our audience, if possible, what are uh, synthetic uh, networks and uh, what can you do with them? Yes, yes, definitely. So probably uh, we can start with what is gene regulatory network, what is endogenous gene regulatory network. So actually in our cells, all, in all the cells basically, there are uh, a type of proteins called transcriptional factors, transcriptional regulators. And what they do is they regulate the expression of the other genes. And they can also regulate each other, and this will form a network. This is called the gene regulatory network. So basically consider, let's say, there is transcription factor A, transcription factor B, and the transcription factor A can induce the expression of transcription factor B, and the transcription factor B can repress the expression of transcription factor A. So this is a very simple network. This is called a negative feedback loop, right? So, uh, and there are other interactions that could be possible. And this kind of connections between transcription factors that will shape the expression of genes, um, these are called gene regulatory networks. And uh, uh, basically almost all our biological functions are regulated by certain type of biological gene regulatory networks. So that's the endogenous. We have that in, in nature. And what we can do in synthetic biology really is to revere. First, we can build new networks. We can use the components that never exist in this cell, but we can introduce it into this cell and we can connect them together into a certain type of network that we, we can design so that it can do some specific functions that the cell cannot do without this network. That's one way that we can do it. This is also called synthetic gene network. And the other thing we can do is it, we can build on the endogenous gene network and we can change how they interact to each other, which is you know, our current work, this is what we do. We can revere it, we can change their interaction so that this will do generate new functions that the natural system doesn't have. So that's basically what we can do with synthetic biology. <laughs> Excellent. And specifically, uh, in this study, you use something that you call oscillatory gene network. So uh, co can you explain what, uh, what does it mean? What is the oscillation and how that uh, is the, how unique is that and, uh, and so on? Yeah, yes. So that's right. In this paper, we build this oscillatory gene network. So uh, the gene network connection for that is called a delayed negative feedback. It's pretty much similar to the example I just raised. This GNA builds GNB, while the GNB will reprise GNA in return. So this is a negative feedback loop. 
and with appropriate parameters, this network will be able to generate oscillations. And then this is called the oscillatory gene network. Also, by oscillation, what I mean is the oscillation in the components of this network. For example, this DNA and the GNB both are transcription factors. They will oscillate. Their expression level will periodically change over time. And this is called uh, oscillation. And this network is called oscillatory gene network. So um, yeah, so that's pretty much what we, we did in this paper. Uh, we revered the endogenous, uh, a little bit of background of the, the endogenous gene network. We found this, there are two important uh, longevity factor. One is 32, we will get into that in detail, but one is 32, one is half these two factors. Uh, in the natural system, they inhibit each other. Basically, A will inhibit, SIR2 uh, will inhibit HAP, while HAP will also inhibit SIR2. And this is called a mutual inhibition network. This is also a type of network. And what it can generate is a toggle switch. Toggle switch meaning that when SIR2 is high, then it will repress HAP, HAP will be low. And this cell will stay there because of this mutual inhibition. Uh, because when HAP is low, HAP will not be able to repress SIR2, SIR2 will keep going high, have will keep going low, low so that it always be that state. That's a switch. Uh, and then if HAP is high, SIR2 is low. And SIR2 will never be high again. And uh, HAP will be always high. So that this is another switch. So, so this is the mutual inhibition will generate this kind of toggle switch. Either SIR2 is high or HAP is high. But you cannot have both high. <laughs> okay, so that's the natural system. And what we found is really the genetically identical cells uh, in their cell, either during the aging process, either SIR2 is high, HAP is low, or HAP is high, SIR2 is low. So in either way, it's bad, because if SIR2 is high, uh, HAP is low, SIR2 is per longevity, but HAP is also per longevity, also beneficial. If it is low, then the mitochondrial is messed up. So that cell will undergo this mitochondrial decline aging pathway. You can see it very clearly. And however, if HAP is high, SIR2 is low, then uh, although mitochondrial is perfectly healthy because HAP is high, but the SIR2 is very low. DNA become unstable. SIR2, the function of SIR2 is uh, protecting DNA, is uh, to stabilize DNA. And DNA is very unstable, and the cell will undergo this DNA instability pathway uh, towards uh, aging. So, so basically, there are these two different aging pathways in the uh, same type of cells. Just depending on which is high, which is low, a single cell will go on one of the single pathways towards cell dies. And uh, so that's why we, we imagine, okay, this, is, this mutual inhibition drives this divergence in aging response. Then how about we make it into a negative feedback instead of the mutual inhibition? So that's what we did. We changed the negative, the, the negative inhibition into a positive regulation genetically so that we revert this gene network from a mutual inhibition network to a negative feedback ne network. And by doing that, we start generating oscillations. So it is no longer a switch. It's no longer that one is high, the other is low. It's always there, the cell will die. It becomes, they will keep switching. They will keep periodically cycling between high and low with these two factors. And the good thing about it is that you are not stuck into a state that is detrimental. Either state is bad, right? I mean, because these two factors are both important. But if you keep like, cycling, then the, the cell will not decide on which aging pathway will go. It will switch between the pathways, and this will dramatically extend the lifespan. So their damage accumulation become slowed down, and uh, uh, and the, the cell lifespan is, is dramatically extended. <laughs> Sorry for the long, uh, long, long explanation. That's basically the idea of, of generating an oscillation in the pathway. Yeah. And you said this was natural, obviously. Are there other natural endogenous um, oscillatory gene networks that are you know, also exist in humans yeah. that people might be used to? <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so first, in our work, this is not natural, right? I mean, this is, we build it. We build it into oscillation. 
but they they build it because they see the nature, how the nature works. We see the oscillator gradient network in the nature, so that we can think of how to build it, right? So come back to your question: Are there endogenous oscillatory network in in nature? Definitely in humans, in other cells. Uh, the best example is circadian clock, the gene regulation network that underlie our circadian clock, the twenty four hour period of our our uh, clock. Uh, the, our gene expression, some of the genes are regulated uh, with this 24-hour period, right? I mean, and there are a gene network that underlie this, this very, uh, very rigorous 24-hour period changes. And this is called uh, a circadian clock uh, uh, gene, gene network. And that's a negative feedback network. So, um, and uh, uh, the other classic example is cell cycle. So the cell division is also regulated by uh, this kind of network that will periodically generate uh, another cell. So um, yeah, and we learn from the nature basically. We, we look at them, we see what kind of network can underlie these oscillations, and we do the model simulations to use computer to simulate if we connect the pathway this way, what will happen? <laughs> and then we can do the experiment. Awesome, thank you. And now I'm going to go back to your research. <laughs> you mentioned SIR2 and HAP. Um, yes. For individuals that don't necessarily know what those are, could you go into a little bit more detail describing what they are and um, how they're related to longevity? Definitely, definitely. Both SIR2 and HAP are, are like pro-longevity factors, pro-longevity genes. SIR2 is basically encoded, SIR2 is skills favorite gene, <laughs> one of them. <laughs> so, so certainly it's encoded by the arguably uh, best studied longevity gene to date. And it, is, uh, it functions as a, a lysine deacetylase. <laughs> what does it mean is it modifies the, the DNA, the, the histone on the DNA, so that it can protect uh, the DNA. And also it can regulate the gene expression. And the Gene expression regulatory role is more of a repression. It is called protein silencing. It basically will shut down the gene expression for certain genes. And also it can uh, protect at the same time, it can protect the DNA from instability. This is the major uh, function uh, of SIR. And uh, uh, for HAF, it, it is also a transcriptional factor, transcription complex actually. And it is responsible for the genes that are important for mitochondrial biogenesis and the mitochondrial function. So um, basically, SIR2 is important for our DI, uh, the stability of our DI, um, important for our genetic information center, let's say, and HAP is important for mitochondrial, our energy production center. So both are very important, and both are pro-longevity. By pro-longevity, meaning that if you delete them, cell will live very, very short, <laughs> so that they, they are important for the longevity. However, at the same time, which is important is that if we overexpress either of these factors, it also has some negative effect. So, so basically, both SIR2 and HAP, you have to keep the you know, optimal range of expression level, which is favor the longevity. So that's actually the basis of our idea. So by using the oscillatory network, we can keep the uh, both SIR2 and HAP oscillating within these optimal levels so that they don't go too high, they don't go too, long, uh, too, too low, so that they can keep functioning to promote the, uh, the longevity. So, yes. Yeah, yeah and uh, just a side note, we had uh, for our audience, we had a few discussions about uh, SIR2, mainly the homologue or autologue of uh, SIR2 in human or in mice. Uh, we spoke with uh, David Sinclair, Chaim Cohen, Raoul, and the uh, other uh, scientists that studied aging uh, or SIR2. Actually, ID Tissenbaum, we discussed about how SIR2 extends lifespan in a C. elegans. So we had many episodes about SIR2. Anyone that wants to learn more about it, we can speak about it for uh, a few hours. And <laughs> we have an exciting uh, subject to discuss. But uh, anyone that wants to refresh his or her memory, are more than welcome to go back and uh, listen to those episodes. I want to now uh, try to dive deep and uh, try to understand. So 
yes, still to extend the lifespan by itself. Hub extend the lifespan by himself as well in East. Yes. Um, my question is, why have you decided to look at the both of them together? Any reason why uh, you decided to look at the CO2 and HAP and not the uh, other uh, longevity genes in East? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's a great question. So uh, uh, let me think about how to answer this question. So, so we are looking at the other genes as well, uh, but, but why we start with CO2 and HAP? So... Uh, Actually, we start with SIR2. <laughs> As you said, that SIR2 is like the best study in the longevity gene. Everyone is interested in SIR2. So we started with SIR2 uh, in, uh, in our cellular aging study, and we designed a reporter that can look at the activity of SIR2 in the single cell level, and then we track the, uh, what we, uh, we have is we can track the, uh, the aging size of each single cell in yeast. And we can look at how SIR2 change, how chromatin silencing change, the expression change during the whole aging process. We start with that. And but what we notice that uh, here, actually, I want to uh, also highlight well our approach, because for East aging study, uh, the traditional approach is really, the East aging is replicative aging of East, which is measured as the number of mother cell divisions before its death. And this is, uh, a genetically tractable model for the age of mitotic cell types in mammals, such as stem cells, epithelial cells. And uh, uh, the way to study it, the traditional way to study it is we have to put the mother cell onto the, uh, the petri dish and look at them under the uh, microdissection microscope. Gil must know that. Uh, so, and then, uh, then each mother cell, when each mother cell generates a daughter cell, then we count, oh, this is the daughter cell number one, this mother cell, and we remove the daughter cell from the mother cell using a needle. And the reason to do that is if you leave the daughter cell there, the daughter cell will become another mother cell, and they will generate their daughters, and this is exponential growth of a colony of cells. You will quickly lose track of which is mother, which is daughter, how many daughters this mother generate. So you have to really look at each single mother cell and then remove the daughter cells every time it generates another cell. So basically meaning that you sit there for three days, every 90 minutes, remove another cell. This is extremely uh, uh, laborious and, uh, and uh, uh, time-consuming and low throughput. <clears throat> and more important that you cannot see the molecular changes because the low-resolution microdissection microscope, you basically cannot see any molecular or cellular changes during aging. And what you can do is you can generate mutants and you can measure the lifespan of many cells. So what we did is we, we designed this microfluidic device, which is very tiny little chips, and we can and it has many many small finger shaped chambers where we, these chambers will uh, trap each of the mother cell inside of this chamber, uh, and then the mother cell can still generate the daughter cells. But the daughter cells there are medians flow away uh, flow through so that the daughter cells will be pushed out from these chambers. But the mother cells are stuck here always. In this way, under the microscope, time-lapse microscopy, we can look at individual mother cells and take a movie of it for their whole aging process. And we can look at hundreds of mother cells at the same time. So in this way, we really can see if we put in the fluorescent markers or repulsors, we can really see the molecular changes during the lifespan of many, many mother cells all at the same time. So using this approach, really, we study the SIR2 at the first place. We start with SIR2, we put in a reporter. But what we see, really, so uh, it's very interesting, is that, uh, as I said, genetically identical cells. These cells are exactly identical, the same DNA, the same environment, but they age differently. Some of the cells, they show this SIR2 become, uh, the activity of SIR2 become decreased during aging process, DNA become unstable. And however, there is another part, another half of the cells where their SIR2 is perfectly good. The SIR2 activity is very high, the DNA is very nice, but they, they, they have some defect. They, 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 they generate these very tiny daughter cells and they, uh, they look unhealthy and they ha actually have a shorter lifespan, but they look very different from the other populations, aging cells. So, um, and we have been thinking, oh, this population, we can clearly see SIR2 is declining and uh, 
DNA is unstable. So, so this is the agent is driven by this instability of DNA. However, this part, this half of the cells, their DNA is perfectly health, uh, uh, perfectly good, and uh, the sertraline activity is high. What's going on with them? Uh, they they die from a different factor, and then we look at different uh, markers, and uh, later on we find out, oh, the mitochondrial is messed up in these cells. And what what is the major regulator of the mitochondrial? HAP is the major regulator of the mitochondrial. That that really draws us to focus on HAP uh, as well, because we see in the same population, oh, half of the cells die because their SIR2 is decreased. The other half of the cells die because their HAP is decreased. <laughs> so, uh, so these two factors really uh, they play different role in different single cells. And as I said, then later on we figure out actually these two factors interact to each other. They inhibit each other. So that this will determine a single cell whether it goes to one this, this aging pass or the other aging pass. So uh, this is a very long answer <laughs> to this question, but, but this is some of the background of our study. And this pathway, as you mentioned, it's not something that we only find in yeast. Um, but specifically in cells, meiotic cells like stem cells are you know, one reason to study it in yeast. Can you make it, what's the connection, I guess, for individuals um, or let's say humans taking maybe what you find in yeast to potentially being able to apply that to something like a stem cell? Definitely, definitely. So uh, both of these two pathways are deeply conserved in your carols. So, and the, a skill just said that SIR2 and the mitochondrial, those are very important factors in human aging, mammalian cell aging. Definitely, people already identify that. Actually, when our first paper, the paper about this two aging mode, two aging phase of isogenic cells, are published also like three years ago in Science. Uh, uh, Danica Chen called me. Uh, Gil must know Danica. Yeah. <laughs> I know her very well. She used to be my uh, baymate at the lunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, so actually, I presented this work uh, uh, in a conference, and then later on, Danica reached out to me. And Danica is working on this uh, hematopoietic stem cell in, in mammals. And she said that we should study these two pathways and their interactions in these human cells or in mammalian cells, in stem cells, because the pathway looks the same. <laughs> so, uh, and both of them are very, very important. So there must be some interactions. We should use the same approach to study it. So that's how relevant this is. So, uh, so they, from her perspective, these are the same thing. <laughs> so uh, very similar, at least. Uh, so um, I think that's our next step. We are talking with, uh, with Danica and with other researchers to explore this direction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and Danica uh, was our first guest in the podcast. Like, you know, so, so yeah, we are, we are closing a circuit in a way <laughs> in this discussion. Yeah. So, so now let's talk a bit about, okay, what was the effect? And, um, so, so can you discuss a bit about what the, was the effect of uh, this network on the longevity of the yeast cells? The effect, yes. So that's the exciting part because it is, uh, it is not surprising that we, by revering it, it can oscillate. That, that I mean, if you do it correctly uh, and you are lucky, you can, I mean, they can oscillate. So what is really important is that this oscillator really uh, Extend the lifespan. <laughs> so, uh, although we hypothesized that, but it was nice to see it really come true. So, uh, it really, the oscillation leads to uh, an 82% increase in lifespan in yeast compared to the control cells. And this is um, the most pronounced lifespan extension that we have ever observed in yeast, in our hands at least. So, um, and actually, we compared this oscillators with the other uh, long-lived, previously identified long-lived uh, single double mutants, previously identified from genetic screens, um, we compare them in parallel using our experimental approach, our cell genetic background, and uh, uh, our oscillators really uh, 
can live longer than all of these long-lived mutants, which is very satisfying. So, uh, so really, this by designing, by generating this these oscillators, by playing this oscillation trick, uh, we can generate super long-lived yeast cells, uh, way longer than unbed those from the unbiased genetic screens. And come back and I, to your comments, you mentioned about previous study, we focused on one single gene doing deletion, overexpression, and why this study is more important, why we need to understand the network. And I think this is, if you understand the network, you can achieve an even better result. You have a bigger effect. You can fine-tune it, right? So that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And I think that that's a an important take-home message for our audience. So before that, like, uh, I don't know, uh, overexpression of uh, CO2 gave on on average 30% or something like that, suddenly you have 80%. That's a huge increase. And uh, if we apply this uh, method, hopefully in the future, to mammals and humans, theoretically, it can increase significantly the extension of lifespan that we can use by uh, using genetic manipulation or treatment with a drug, or even a, a mix of a, a lifestyle uh, intervention that say that uh, there are some pathways that they work in a, a, in a different ways. And then if you uh, add them one on top of each other, you have like a layer of cake that can uh, actually allow, hopefully, allow, will allow us to live longer. That's why I'm so excited about uh, this study. And uh, it's really impressive. 82% is really impressive. And another side note uh, that I, when I read carefully your paper, I've seen that uh, if you look, because not all of them oscillate perfectly. So mm -hmm. you said that when you separated the perfect oscillated uh, E cells, you go to an extension of up to 105%, which is more than 2x increase in lifespan, which is really, really impressive. I think that the only example that I know is what Cynthia Canyon done in the 90s on uh, DAF2 and DAF16. That was in this uh, level. But again, it's a different organism that is not replicative organism. And I think that that was the, the highest increase of lifespan. So that's very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ashley. All right. I'm going to pivot us to the next topic unless no, you want to ask any follow-ups in there. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we, we summarized it well, but maybe we'll summarize it again because it's really exciting. When you use a, a, a network of uh, genes and you allow them to regulate each other and you engineer it in the right way, you can uh, increase the lifespan much more significantly than when you use one gene or one pathway or one system. And maybe the application for that in the future, again, it's a, a model organism, we need to be very careful, but uh, the, uh, uh, the implication of that can be enormous for uh, our lifespan. And uh, uh, when we interview in the past, some of the leader uh, scientists, some of them say, hey, we can live for 300, for 400. Maybe <laughs> this method will allow us to go there. So this is a, that's why I see it as a revolution, because uh, you can head one on top of each other and another one maybe, and maybe uh, in the next uh, nature paper or science paper, we'll have four different uh, pathways, and then suddenly it will be 200%, 300%. So we can get to a, a place that we cannot imagine today based on only one gene or one uh, protein. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's a very nice summary. <laughs> that's a good future. <laughs> yeah. The enthusiasm from both of you is also making me very excited about it. <laughs> As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring, to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. 
All right. So your lab investigates the organizational structure of cellular networks and how their organization contributes to processes like stress, aging, and different diseases. Um, in your research, you also investigate causes of cellular aging. So can you elaborate a little bit on how organizational structure contributes to aging and what organizational structure means exactly? So, uh, so that's, uh, so what I mean there is really, uh, oh, you're the, we call it the gene network architecture or gene network structure. This is really, uh, come back to the earlier question. This is how these uh, transcription factors interact to each other, really. Like, I mean, there are many ways they interact to each other and they all have different effects, different dynamics, different uh, outcomes. As I said, the classic example, A will induce B, but B will repress A. This is a so-called negative feedback. It will generate either oscillation or adaptation. It has homeostasis. And if A will, um, and we talk about the endogenous network, right? Uh, start to unhap, uh, they, A will reprise B and B will reprise A as well. So this is called mutual inhibition. This is another so-called architecture or structure, or, <laughs> right? And a network motif. And this is basically if these two genes interact this way, then it is a toggle switch. By it's on, by it's off. And then it stay there. By it's on, by it's off the other way. And, and it will stay there. It will never change. So this is called a toggle switch. Uh, and it's because of the way they interact to each other, because of this network architecture. And there is other like positive, auto uh, positive uh, feedback loop. Uh, for example, A will promote B and uh, B will promote A as well. This is called a positive feedback. And then it will uh, generate bistability. So basically, if you look at single cell, there will be two populations uh, have very different response. Uh, so people already study this for, 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 uh, for a long time. And our, the major goal of our question, uh, of our research is that we want to identify these network architectures, uh, both in nature, endogenous, but also artificial, synthetic. And we want to study how this will contribute to biological function uh, in the context, as you said, in the context of aging, which is this work, the context of stress response and in the context of disease models. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, and now we, we uh, also ask our audience to tell us what are they interested in okay. and, uh, yeah. and what they said they are really interested in uh, autophagy and uh, specifically how it is uh, relevant to uh, longevity or aging and specifically how it is uh, connected to fasting. So can you discuss a bit uh, your viewpoint about that? Of course, of course. And, and actually, it is related to, to this work. So I think, especially when we talk about fasting, a very uh, popular topic is intermittent fasting, right? I mean, not constant fasting. Nobody wants to do constant fasting, but intermittent fasting with pure, periodic intervals in between, uh, right? I mean, and this is, if you think about it, it, it's similar to the oscillations, right? I mean, you keep doing it periodically. So I think <clears throat> even the underlying, the universal underlying principles may be the same. So why they work better than the constant one? It may be the similar uh, uh, principle of the why the oscillator is performing better. So, uh, so we, we didn't, in our lab, we didn't start to study autophagy yet, uh, but we, we will look into that. Uh, but, uh, but we are very interested in that. And it is actually related, definitely related to the mitochondrial hat pathway uh, and the sirtuin pathway, I believe. So, uh, but we did look at the fasting and uh, uh, oh, intermittent fasting a little bit using our yeast model. I don't know how relevant it is to human beings. But we generate this oscillatory glucose limitation for the yeast and look at, okay, will that be able to extend the lifespan? Will that be able to extend the lifespan better than a constant calorie restriction or glucose limitation? And what we see in the preliminary dot, this is unpublished. Uh, the preliminary dot is it indeed have a very dramatic effect on the longevity, uh, the periodic oscillatory glucose limitation. 
And also, it has dramatic effects on these two pathways, the SIRT2 pathway and the mitochondrial pathway. We, we have those reporters, and we see dramatic changes there. So even without the context of autophagy, if we only look at the other two major aging hallmarks, uh, we can see clear changes already. So, uh, so, so uh, basically, now we are trying to understand the mechanism. We, we build a model of it. Uh, but I think this is all, it, the, this result really suggests it is universal, right? I mean, it is a general approach to, uh, to yeah. test lifespan. So do it periodically. <laughs> so, and we have to figure out what, how, what's the frequency, what's the amplitude. We have to figure out all these dynamics. That's the next, next, actually our next aim. Uh, and I think starting from yeast is a good, good starting point because we can do ver everything very fast and we can do systematic analysis. So, and with that information, we can then go further to the other organisms. So, uh, so that's what we, we are trying to do now. So we are trying to explore the dynamic patterns of glucose starvation, glucose limitation, fasting, using yeast as a model organism. Okay, so so let me just uh, try to translate it back to humans. So what <laughs> you you have done, you uh, decrease the amount or starve the cells for glucose. So they have had a very uh, lot, not very low, but lower amount of glucose, <laughs> uh, let's say in the bloodstream. And what you have seen that those uh, cells live longer, and you have seen a uh, a part of it is the the changing in the activity of uh, up to up, soy, and silto, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Good. And and doing the dynamic intervention is is, yeah. is important. Have a effect. Okay. So the dynamic you mean when you have the oscillatory uh, process, they live even longer with the uh, restriction of the glucose. That's another thing to try. We we haven't tried that yet. Okay. What I mean is that we can do this glucose limitation dynamically. So because yeah. previously what people do is culture the cell in this constant glucose limitation condition, like color restriction, yeah. right? And, yeah. and then see an effect. Uh, that's, what, okay. that's not what we want to do, right? We, what we want to do is if we want to explore the intermittent fasting or, or fasting at a later age, we can do it dynamically. We, we have yeah. a device that we can do whatever we want dynamically, time dependent, so that yeah. we can generate this oscillatory input from the outside yeah. and see their effect. And indeed, it has a very dramatic effect, suggesting yeah. no matter it is inside or outside, this oscillation can help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So you, you basically mimic the intermittent fasting to the east and you show that it's a walking event, which is. Exactly. A which is very cool. Uh, great. So, so we would like to discuss uh, another focus of your lab and uh, uh, specifically heterogeneity in uh, cancer cells. Um, so maybe let's start by you explaining what does it mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, what, what we study for, for cancer is very, very specific. It's from my background is uh, a quantitative computational biologist and a single cell biologist. What we want to understand is really the difference between genetically identical cancer cells, uh, clonal cancer cells. So because most of the variability uh, between different cancer cells is genetic. They, they have mutations, they have different mutations so that they behave differently. So we want to ask a question that is different. We want to focus on the non-genetic difference. So basically, these are genetically identical cells, uh, and they uh, they are from a single a single clone, but they behave differently. Uh, like the yeast cell in aging, right? They are genetically identical, but they behave very very differently. That's where these genetic uh, genetic networks or this dynamic of gene expression will contribute uh, to generate this difference. That's what we we, we are interested in. So that's why. We focus on specific um, uh, clonal cancer cells, and then we look at their difference uh, in gene expression and in behaviors. And maybe this will underlie some of their, for example, anti-chemo uh, 
uh, resistance, right? I mean, the chemo resistance may be different. Uh, this is what we study. And specifically, currently we study this, uh, uh, and, and why they are different. The difference is actually because of the stochastic, intrinsic stochasticity in gene expression. Even the genetics is totally the same. The DNA is all the same. <coughs> the way they express the gene, uh, there are noise in it, randomness in it, stochasticity in it. So that will be amplified and then end up with different phenotypes. So that, that's for sure in many cases. So that's what we are interested in. And uh, currently what we are interested in is this, um, uh, this mutation. This is TERT promoter mutation. TERT is uh, telomerous uh, gene, and, which is super important. The expression is super important for cancer. If you have too much of it, uh, it will lead to cancer, almost uh, causal, uh, a causal relationship. So <coughs> and the people identify this point mutation in the promoter, a single mutation in the promoter that is highly correlated with the cancer uh, uh, occurrence. So, uh, and what's going on? A single mutation in a promoter. And uh, they look at the gene expression. If, let's say this single mutation is super important for gene expression and you have a huge amount of TERT, then, uh, then it makes sense. But actually what they saw is they didn't see a huge increase uh, in TERT expression. They see like a twofold increase to the most. And this should not be able to lead to cancer. I mean, it's not that high. So, so that's the question. And we, we start our uh, study there. And our hypothesis is because they look at the population level. So they look at the average level of the turtle expression. However, if turtle expression in this mutation, with this mutation, it will, will be spread out like uh, in, among different cells. Meaning the average will not be increased too much, but the variability is huge. And then some cells will express this high level of gene, uh, of gene that will lead to tumor. And uh, uh, the tumor, you don't need every single cell to be a tumor, right? I mean, only one cell, they will start uh, growing into a tumor. So, so that's our hypothesis. And that's what we, we are working on now uh, to look at the difference in genetically identical cancer cells. Um, so, so again, to translate it to uh, our audience, uh, what you are saying that uh, if you look at the cancer cells and specifically on the expression of TERT, which is basically an enzyme that allow the telomeres to be replicated and then allow them to ex escape the senescent and grow like crazy. Yeah. What you are saying, if you look at the population of the cancer cells, the expression of TERT is only 2x. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at the uh, specific cells, you have some that are 2x, some that are 1.5x, but a few that are, let's say, 10x. Yeah. And because they are cancer cells, they can uh, replicate fast. And those are basically the beginning of the cancer that they can replicate like crazy and basically kill the organism. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, that's totally. Yeah, this, this again, this is very preliminary uh, uh, hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, whether this will really lead and to tumor, we really don't know. To, uh, that's, a that's the direction the, that we have. Yeah, yeah, we thought yeah. there that there are specific okay. cells that, um, just like these cancer gene or cancer ones that overexpress that, that maybe it's just a couple of cells that make everything age faster or bring up that average, like you said before. What's the, the overlap that you see between cancer biology and aging processes? That's right. That's right. That's very possible. So, uh, so as I said, the underlying principle are the same. We, we both understand the network architecture, how they contribute to to the <coughs> cellular responses, and also at a single cell level, right? I mean, different single cell will behave very differently, although they are identical, actually, genetically identical. So uh, in, in, in aging, definitely, as I just mentioned, we see that identical cells can age toward two different pathways. If I look at a population of white type cells, their lifespan can be like tenfold different. And they should be identical. They die at the same environment, same DNA. What's going on there, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah, totally. I, I think the basic principles are the same. The, the noise, the stochasticity in gene expression play a big role. And this, this difference is amplified by gene networks and to, to the phenotypes. 
Okay, we're trying to squeeze so many different things into this because there were so many topics that we wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, next, I want to transition into stress because that's also something that you focus on in your lab. Um, as we age, we know that our body's ability to respond to stressors can change um, and that stress can definitely be impactful for aging. Um, specifically, that kind of prolonged stress um, that can really accelerate the aging process. Uh, we do know there's different types of stress. You know, some is acute stress. That's really good. Maybe like exercising is a form of stress in our body, but there's some benefic beneficial aspects for overall health um, in contrast to something like smoking or a job loss or um, any other type of prolonged stress that we know can result in really negative um, impacts. So how does the body differentiate between <laughs> various types of stress and why do some stressors elicit positive responses while, while other ones have really negative ones. Okay. Yeah. So these are two questions. One is how cell, uh, how human body or animal or cell cope with different types of stresses and then why different stresses may have different effects. So uh, the first question is that uh, at least, again, I, I have to uh, start from my standpoint, which is the cellular uh, response. And uh, uh, so cellular response really uh, uh, cells have different pathways to respond, specific pathways. They evolve specific pathways to respond to different types of stresses that we know. Uh, for example, the oxidative stress, there is oxidative stress pathways that are coping with it. Uh, and there is osmotic stress pathways, heat stress pathways. And these are all very different. Uh, so uh, cells evolve all these different pathways to specifically uh, comfort resistance to different stresses. So, uh, and then come to your, the other question, why they, their effects are different. To me, from my perspective, uh, I think the, 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 uh, the timing and the, uh, the strength is different. Of course, the, the nature of the stress also contributes, right? As you said, that's even job loss, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> so, well, uh, the other, I mean, uh, being hungry for, for, for one, one meal, that's, that's totally <laughs> okay, right? I mean, so the, the, the nature of the, the stress definitely contributes, but even let's talk about the same nature of the stress, the same type of stress, but maybe the, the duration of the stress, the timing of the stress and the strength of the stress all contribute to their, uh, to their effects. And which may be upset. So, for example, uh, like earlier life, mild stress. Basically, uh, the idea is it can prime the system to um, to prepare for the future more severe stress, so that it actually have beneficial effect to prepare you. Right. Uh, however, if it is a very long term severe stress, of course, it will be detrimental. So, I think the timing, the stress, the uh, the uh, the duration all this will matter uh, for the for the outcome. That's uh, not 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 only for for health but also for aging as well. Okay. Uh, speaking about uh, chronic stress, mm -hmm. is it uh, causing a specific age related diseases, or we just accelerate all the processes related to aging? Yes. So uh, again, from my perspective. Uh, we can always look at individual animal, individual cells. I want to see the difference between them. Uh, what I believe is that uh, different types of chrono uh, chronic stresses will lead to different types of age-related outcome consequences. And uh, aging uh, uh, is not a, a, like a, a common pathway. Uh, I believe that in different cells, uh, aging is different. Uh, aging is driven by different molecular pathways uh, in different cells. Uh, and uh, uh, that's why if this, for example, if you have protein stress, then this will activate all this um, protein stress response and uh, will, uh, will cause damage in protein homeostasis. And this will lead to aging. And this will lead to this protein stress-driven aging process. Well, the other stress, DNA damage stress, will drive the DNA instability and the cell will die in the other way, uh, trigger another aging process. So, so I definitely believe it is not 
just accelerating a universal aging process. I think aging is specific uh, at the level of cells, single cells. How about genetics? Do they contribute to how we process or respond to certain stressors? Um, Oh, yeah, of course, of course, yeah. So as I said, that most of the stresses are respond uh, are co- coped with by uh, stress responsive pathways, specific stress responsive pathways, uh, which their components are encoded by genes, right? So if you have mutations in these genes, this will definitely change the way you respond to stress. So genetics definitely contribute uh, and play a bigger role, a big, pretty big role there. Uh, depending on, of course, depending on the context. Uh, and uh, uh, and the, from the synthetic biology perspective, like, I mean, we can even uh, revere the stress response pathways so that we can let the cell to respond the way we want it to respond. Not the natural way, but the other way. So that's another idea that we, we have been thinking. We have been on that working line, on. can we train so maybe implement some of those synthetic techniques, um, the body and how to optimally respond to stress at a cellular level is that, you know, exercise might be a good example, like you mentioned before. Little stress is good, so it prepares you for other bigger stress. But, you know, are there other things that we can do to help the body respond to stress better? Exactly. I think the the easiest way, the most natural way, of course, is that... uh, as you said, exercise or uh, the other uh, the other uh, mild stress that that is not detrimental, it's very transient, and it is uh, it primed the whole system uh, to to further stresses, to more resistant to further uh, stresses. So so that will be definitely beneficial. That is a kind of training, right? I mean, priming the system. So uh, and that's doable. So. Um, Genetically, uh, we, we, as I said, that we, we are thinking about synthetic biology way to, to optimize the, the cellular responses for humans. Uh, but, but that's a long way to go. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that that's a, a, a very uh, interesting point of discussion. And actually, uh, at Insta Tracker, we are uh, aiming to help people to live uh, healthier longer using lifestyle. <laughs> so you already mentioned uh, exercise as uh, maybe a lifestyle intervention that might help you to decrease stress, and I assume also allow uh, uh, us to live uh, uh, better longer or longer better. Mm-hmm. My question to you, are there other lifestyle uh, intervention that uh, people can use in order to I live better longer. Yeah. So uh, first, I'm not an expert of that, uh, but but uh, as far as I know, uh, yeah, different to exercise. Uh, I think uh, uh, be careful with your your diet, right? I mean, low calorie diet and uh, uh, inter uh, intermittent fasting. I, I'm not testing that yet. I'm not trying by myself yet, but it, I heard it is very beneficial. And probably at some point, I will I will test that. Uh, from from biology perspective, it, it seems beneficial, right? I mean, so um, so I, I think this just this healthy uh, lifestyle that we know, right? I mean, no smoking <laughs> and uh, uh, no drug and uh, sleep well <laughs> and uh, eat well. <laughs> I think this will all contribute, all contribute and exercise well. So uh, so. Yeah, so I, unfortunately, I don't have <laughs> some tricks for that, <laughs> but, but I think we just stay healthy, right? Yeah, I, I think that nobody has a trick and there is no silver bullet. <laughs> and I, I, what you mentioned, it is what it is. You want to live better, longer, you need to work hard. Not yet a, a silver a bullet drug that can help you to live to 100. If you want to live to uh, 100, work hard and uh, and uh, be on your best and hopefully we'll live there for, not forever, but for 100. <laughs> and we will try very hard on our side to make <laughs> synthetic cells to help you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Awesome. Gil, I think that we answered my top tip for health span. Do the work. There's no silver bullet. 
nothing easy um, <laughs> until we develop some cool cells that can help yeah. you out. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Well, I think we are wrapping up. You finally got through all those questions. Thank you so much. Uh, I learned a ton and I would love Thank to have you, you as much. a professor. You were so excited explaining so many of these complex topics. Um, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you. Okay, so I think we are coming up on our time. Thank you so much, Dr. Wow. Uh, we look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the other leading scientists. For more information, please go to www.infotracker.com slash podcast. Again, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Al, and uh, it was a real pleasure uh, for both of us. And uh, I hope that also for our uh, listener to learn about the exciting discoveries that you had. And hopefully, uh, very soon you'll have more. They would love to invite you again and discuss those. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.